Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're at the Twin Cities Marathon Expo doing another podcast. I've got a special guest with us here, John McGee, pancreatic cancer survivor, warrior fighter. Your son, James, has run for us a couple times. Uh, I think he ran with us first here in Twin Cities, or no, mm-hmm. Chicago. He ran in Chicago, yeah. yeah. Chicago Marathon. That and was great. The, and that's the first time you and I met. <laughs> yeah. And we met at the dinner. At the banquet, right. yeah. and then James, I think, ran last year, but he's run Twin Cities before, so mm-hmm. we've been kind of introduced to the family for a couple years. Right. And thank you guys. Lynn is here as well, mm-hmm. John's wife. For Who ran Twin Cities last year? Ran Twin Cities. That's marathon. right. That's right. right. Ten mile. Ten mile. Ten mile. We got to get right. her to do That's the that. grandma's half. We got to get her up to the grandma's and do yeah. the half. She's got the running bug. But I know you guys just came off a, a lifetime trip, which right. we're going to talk to. Okay. But for audience listening at home, James, and we've got a pretty vast audience. We've got fighters, survivors, families, athletes, CrossFitters, runners, celebrities that hopefully listen to this podcast, scientists. We always give our guests an opportunity to share their background with our audience and a little bit about themselves. And I always tell our guests, I I, I preface this question, you can say as much of your background or as little, and we'll go from there. Okay, well, I grew up in Joliet, Illinois, family of eight, uh, hardworking uh, Midwestern family. Um, Then I moved here to go to college and I've been here with my wife ever since over 30 years. Um, you were talking about a trip. We just come back from Europe and the European trip was scheduled for our 30th anniversary. But then in 2016, that's when I received the pancreatic cancer diagnosis. And so we had to cancel this trip. So it is a remarkable moment in time that we were able to put it back on the schedule and be here with you today. It's pretty amazing. It is. I'm grateful. So you were you were diagnosed in 2016. So Correct. let's go there for a second. Mm-hmm. What was life before? Because you're a pretty fit guy, and I okay. know from talking to James, mm-hmm. you know you were active. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about that life okay. prior to pancreatic right. cancer. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit triathletic. Um, sprint. I like that term. Right, uh, sprint stuff. I like to swim. I've adapted swimming. I, I'm not a natural swimmer. Run, bike, and I also uh, like to box, so I, I get that, the speed yeah. bag and things and the heavy bag. Uh, but before that, I was very active and uh, began to have pains in my lower chest and it would go all the way to my back. That began in about January of 2016. The doctor tried several different things to try to figure it out. I would try to work out and try to work through it try to get the endorphins going to kill the pain. And sometimes it would help, but eventually the pain just would not subside. And it was my uh, primary physician who asked the radiologist one night when I was in the emergency room to focus on his pancreas because we had read and said, boy, this, this pain pattern is similar to, to those who have pancreatic cancer. And they, that day they found the tumor. A week later with the biopsy, they confirmed that it was, a, uh, it was cancerous and that it was in a very vulnerable place near the artery, on the artery at the time. It was stage 1B at the time, 
But by the time I get the treatment, uh, my surgeon said it was stage three. So it began to move very, very fast. So were you going to the doctor though regularly? I mean, again, being active, I mm -hmm. think people that are active versus sedentary tend to know well, I, I, I guess this is like, I'm making assumptions here, but I do know from my experience, people that are super active, they're in tune with their body. So they know what they know what's going on, but they also probably go to the doctor more often. Yeah. Interesting so enough, that's you were true. going, so this was, you know, your normal checkups were fine. You didn't mm -hmm. have any issues. And then out of the blue, this right. just weird pain, I guess we would describe yeah. just comes out of the blue. It's, it's interesting. My, I get my physical in January. Mm -hmm. um, and my doctor at the end of each appointment asked me two questions. For the last 30 years, he's asked these questions. He says, John, how are you emotionally? And how are you physically? Are you experiencing any stress uh, emotionally or physically? And I told him for the first time in 30 years, both. Life was stressful and things were going on in my body I did not understand. And the next thing, he put me in for a stress test. That didn't prove to be anything. And it was just a number of different things trying to identify this was pancreatic cancer. We just didn't want to believe it, but that's what it was. And we landed there and I'm grateful because of the speed of the growth. If we wasted any more time, I, I'm not sure I would be here today. But from when you initiated the kind of symptoms mm -hmm. to when you were clinically diagnosed, that was pretty, it sounds like it was That's pretty six quick. Months. Oh, it was six months. That's six wow. months. So start January is when I identify something's, something's going, going on. on. So there's a stress test in February. Then I go in for some more tests thinking that it's acid reflux or something like a that. A gallbladder. Yeah. Remember, right. Exactly. I remember drinking tons of water. water yeah, because they're saying it's your gallbladder. <laughs> to get yeah. it to pass, man. It's yeah. like, oh, gee, I can't wait for yeah. this to happen. Yeah, I know. Because I've heard horror stories <sighs> about that. Yeah. But um, eventually, I uh, ended up in the emergency room. And you're an athlete. We are pain tolerant. Yes. So when pain causes us to stop and go to the doctor, then that's pain. And it was a debilitating pain at that point that radiated from the lower chest all the way to the back. And that was the, the pattern. It was a symptom that I read online about. And then they intentionally focused on, in, in the CAT scan that night when I was in the emergency room, intentionally focused on the pancreas. And thank God uh, the radiologist found it. And that's when the treatment began in June of 2016. So from January, the odyssey begins. In June, we establish uh, that this is what's happening and this is where you're going. I think you, you, you say odyssey, and I think that's such a powerful term because I think that's, I look at my own experience with my dad's and it was an odyssey for like six months, you know? And that's something that's so frustrating when we talk to families, you know, because think about it, if, like you said, from January to June, it had grown and it rapidly, you know, gone from stage 1B to three, like if in January there was maybe, and, and hindsight's always 2022, let's preface that, you know? So I think if, if you got in right away and did what you had to do in June and January, you know, would the narrative be changed or not necessarily 
the narrative, but for other people as well, you know, because we hear that so often that people, you know, they tend to go through this odyssey or this, I kind of call it a rigmarole or this constant carousel of, oh, no, you have to look at this or it's your gallbladder, it's gout, it's diabetes, it's something else, or it's, it's so inconclusive. And that's where I think as an advocacy group, one of the things that we really try to do is, you know, to share stories like this, because I think it's so important for people that are listening at home, that when they do have a symptom that they know is not right, like you have to be your biggest advocate, right? Because yeah, no one's going to advocate for you. Right. So in June, you start treatment. Correct. And what was the treatment protocol that you were- Now the um, protocol they call it is weed killing. In other words, in order to be a candidate for surgery, surgery yep. you have to have chemotherapy. Uh, I had for fear knocks for eight rounds, then 25 rounds of radiation with 25 rounds of a, later, a lighter chemo, oral chemo at the same time. And the goal was to be prepped in time sometime in January of 2017 to have the surgery, yeah. And your main oncologist was <clears throat> Dr. Trudy, or did My you? My main oncologist was Dr. Leach. He's a, he actually is a research uh, veteran in this area. And at Mayo, so you stay, or no? No, he's not at Mayo. He's here in uh, Virginia Piper, uh, Minnesota Oncology. Uh, so local. Local, yes. And Dr. Trudy, of course, my surgeon, he's at Mayo, Mayo. Clinic. So you guys decided to stay with the local oncologist and then opt for surgery at Mayo yes. with Dr. Trudy. Yes. And you, you said something interesting, be your own best advocate. And we had a friend who was very clear to tell us that if we feel un, 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 unsure about any part of the process. And um, that's when my wife made me aware that one of the clinicians helpers said, you know, I'd be dead in 18 months. And and it didn't surprise I the surgeon and I weren't clicking and at he didn't the see, local at the local and yeah. we and nothing against him it just we didn't click and the reality is that if someone's going to open your body out and take out vital organs you need to have <laughs> a relationship <laughs> sure, and you want to have trust right, right? You trust, trust or give me flowers something yeah. but let's build some camaraderie and we just didn't click and that's when a friend told me if you're feeling uncertain at all, you need to go and get a second opinion. And interesting enough, we we sent an email to Dr. Trudy at Mayo Clinic. And the first email was to the general group. And they said he wouldn't be available to take anyone for six weeks. And so he had a private email. So we sent it to him. 20 minutes later, he responds back and says, can you be, but it was a Tuesday. He says, can you be here Thursday? We said, yeah, we can yeah. be here Thursday. So we make the 90 minute drive and the rest is history. Uh, and we hit it out. He, he's a Chicago guy too, played football in our conference. <laughs> and, but we, we hit it off very well. Interesting about Dr. Trudy is that he was a consoler for my son. And, um, because the reason why he does this work at Mayo Clinic is because his father died of pancreatic cancer. And he remembered all of the odyssey that was there with trying to discover it. And the pain of that has caused him to be a medical advocate in this field and a pioneer in this field 
what we call this weed killing, uh, taking care of the tumor first before we go into surgery because the problem in the past was that uh, they would do surgery first, get in there, find out that there was more cancer than they realized. Then you suddenly have to not deal with just a recovery from Whipple surgery, which is a bear. But now you got to go into treatment after that. And they, they got away from that. I said, listen, if you can bear the treatment, then the surgery It'll be tough, but you should be able to do it. So in 16, in June, you set this weed killing. Right. You go through that. Mm -hmm. Then you become eligible for surgery. You don't know until the morning of. That you'll be eligible. Right. You go through a PET scan the day before. And then Dr. Trudy says, okay, you're going to go into surgery. We get the margins we want, but we really didn't have the margins he wanted. But he just was confident that we could go. Now, the other part of it is that when you get in for surgery, when they go into your stomach, if they find anything there, because a pet pet scan can't Can't find that. Yeah, they'll abort, right? (laughs) Close you up. So all the way until that moment, you're not certain you're going to wake up and that they've actually gotten after the tumor or not. So So I want to talk about this for a second because, and for the audience listening at home, we haven't gotten to this, but you are a man of faith. Yes. You have your own congregation. Mm-hmm. And I know we're, we're going to talk about that, about how that has helped you through this whole process. Okay. But mentally, what do you say to yourself to prepare yourself for that situation where you know that the deck is kind of stacked against you because mm-hmm. the margins don't look good. Margins don't look good. No. And you don't know mm-hmm. if they open you up what they're going to find. Mm-hmm. So you're going out, gonna take a nap, and mm-hmm. hopefully when you wake up, it did the job, And but there's a high possibility that nothing happens. Nothing happens, right. So mentally, how do you go through that, okay. James? So, um, I mean, John, I called okay. you James. It's okay, my dad's name is James. <laughs> He's named after my father. Um, in the story of King David and Goliath, conquering Goliath, the. Written scripture says that he chose five smooth stones. He's, he's going to beat the guy, the big guy with rocks and a sling. But why does he need five smooth stones? Because uh, Goliath has four other relatives that are just as big as him. So just in case, you know, he gets one, he has to take them all on that day. So he was prepared. And my approach was, what are my five smooth stones to deal with the giant that I'm looking at right now? Because it was a giant. And it's something maybe I'd never seen before. And those were my faith, my family, fitness, food, future. You have to have something to live for. Something, a strong reason to live. The other thing that helped me through the odyssey of it and the, the unbelievable exhaustion, fatigue... I didn't realize a human being could get that tired after chemo treatments. And so it's another biblical principle where the Messiah himself said, tear this body down and in three days, I'll build it back up again. And that's literally what happens when you go yeah. for Fafirinox. You go through three days, eight hours in the chair, then you're hooked up to a portable device, still pumping for three the days, stuff yeah. in for three days. And my mindset had to say, you know what, this stuff, uh, it's, it's killing the right thing, 
but it's killing other things too. And my job is on the other side of it to find my way back, to rebuild it, tear it down in three days, and I'll build it back up again. And that included going to the gym and, and interacting, trying to eat as healthy as I can, laughing <laughs> as much as I can. And th th that was my approach. That was kind of my biblical approach. Five smooth stones, tear the body down in three days, I'll build it back up again. Loving and remember that the cancer cells are my cells. It is a part of me, but it's a sick part of me. And it deserves as much love as all of the healthy parts of me. So I had to be intentional. You know, you don't think about those things at a day's time, but wow, when you're facing that moment where it could be life or death, you, you find a few strategies that seem whimsical, but yet they work for you in the moment. Well, it's very powerful. There's, there's so many nuggets that you just said and something that I just wrote and I'm taking notes here is the acceptance of the disease, which, okay, we've done 80 plus of these episodes and we've had a lot of survivors on. And there's one guy that comes to mind that said he loved his chemotherapy because he accepted the reality of the disease. But the, the over arc on this is the mental because if you have that mental strength to get through it physically, it's going to beat you up. And I've always said, and you know this because you went through it, it's not about being on top. Everyone thinks it's like being on top. It's about getting up when you get knocked right. down and you're going to get knocked down and you're going to get knocked down and you're going to get knocked down. Mm -hmm. But if you have that mental fortitude and that mental perseverance and that stubbornness mm -hmm. to just get through that mentally and accept it and embrace it. Laughter's another thing that we've heard a lot from a lot of survivors. <laughs> like we had a guy on and he's a great guy, big burly Italian guy. He's not big, but he's kind of, he's square. And you know, he, he said he's square, you know, his body style, Ray out of Worcester. And he's a survivor. And he said, you know, laughter got him through mm -hmm. every chemotherapy treatment. Right. Every time they went in, they were cracking jokes. Right. They were laughing. They were like- Jokes they, we can't tell, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it got him through chemo though, you know, which is so powerful. And I think families know the reality, but the, the survivors and the fighters know the reality. Mm -hmm. They don't need to be reminded of the reality, I think. Sure every day mm -hmm. and that's the power is like the mental strength the laughter the mm -hmm. acceptance of that to get through that it's just so powerful john so yeah. i appreciate you with your honesty there mm -hmm. to share that with our <laughs> audience because it's it's really impactful i think you know again lynn and i can say here and we can say that but you've gone through it right and you've beat it right so which is even more amazing here mm -hmm. So you go through the Whipple. Yeah. Then did you do chemotherapy after the Whipple? No, I didn't do chemotherapy so you were after, which was a surprise. I was fully anticipating that's going to be part of it. What's interesting about the entire treatment process that all of us with pancreas cancer are going through is that you're not recovering from one thing. You're recovering from three different conditions. You're recovering from what uh, the ravages at chemotherapy, which I, as I sit with you right now, I've got neuropathy yeah. in my toes and fingers, and that's just my constant friend, neuropathy. <laughs> um, then you have the side effects of the radiation that you have to recover from. 
And then the Whipple is his own separate set of, of challenges. And a lot of people after Whipple uh, have not, I know that I've connected with and, and we've, we've, we've walked through the journey together. They emotionally had a very difficult time, particularly after Whipple, because of what it does to your body, digestive system, just it's a whole reworking. It's a whole, whole reworking. Yeah. It's a whole new lifestyle change that you're going to have. So was that? So when you get through surgery, mm-hmm. I just want to go back to this, certainly, because we talked about not knowing and how you prepared yourself mentally. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this. You have the surgery. You come out. You wake up, and Dr. Trudy says. We're good. Cured. You're cured. The word he used was cure. And of course, the word my oncologist, when he first met me, Dr. Leach, the first thing he said to me was, John, let's cure this. And I had never heard that it could be cured. Yeah. From the moment that I told people I had pancreatic cancer, I felt like a ghost because everyone's story was a bad one. It was one that didn't end well. And... You have to work your emotions through that too. What what others see around you is negative. So when you speak to them, they 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 see a ghost. They they don't look at you the same way that they did because they have no idea. All they know are the stories up until this point that say that only six percent survive after eighteen to thirty six months, and and they had a relative, or they had a cousin, or someone close to them. And that's something to emotionally work through too, the emotions that others have that are associated with you and the cancer. Interesting thing about Whipple, which I think I'm kind of a, a geek about probability. And what the doctor told me is that they sent the portion of my pancreas that was cut out where the tumor was. And the first thing he said was that it was wrapped around the oh, artery and that because of the treatment, it peeled off. And because it peeled off, I didn't have to have reconstructive work. That was huge. Yeah. Right. Then the other part of it, which I didn't know they could know this, but two days later he says, well, we finished the biopsy. And after all the treatment and all the surgery, they found one microcell of cancer on the part of my pancreas that was cut out. One, one microcell. So who knows? I mean, we're we hope we find things in time. Some people say, "Yeah, you beat it." I'm not so sure. There's there's that part they call it um, a survivor regret. Yeah. Where I hear people say, "Hey, John, you know, you must have." something else to do in your life. You must have some, well, you don't feel that way. You feel everyone has a special purpose. Yeah. And, and we do everything we can to make it happen, to work it through. But outside of those things, I told you the love, the faith, the family, all those things, there, there are no certainties with this. It is a giant, it is a challenge. Do you think your professional background and what you do for a living day to day. I mean, I, I'm going to not speak for you, but yeah. having that outlook, mm-hmm. 
having that day-to-day job mm-hmm. helps that tremendously? It it can help, it can. but also can put you on the spot where it can't do you practice what you preach because you've walked people. <laughs> so how did, but, so, so I'm, I'm just fascinated by that. Uh, I grew up in a, in a very uh, Roman Catholicism, mm-hmm. like, you know, from when I, was, background well. when I was, yeah. you know, before I even remember, like I had no choice. Like I was forced into that. This like most, most children, right? Yeah. It's like right. what you believe. Right. And then going through, even up through high school, I went to mm-hmm. parochial school, right. went to Roman Catholic high school. And then, you know, college was the first time I actually right. attended a public university. Dude, public the nuns saved my life, yeah, man. Exactly. Come on. My knee, I, I still have the knee, uh, I still have marks on my knees from kneeling on rulers and pencils when I was bad back in uh, preschool. But uh, in all seriousness, you know, I, I think though, from a, a spirituality standpoint mm-hmm. is so impactful, but I do agree with what you said though, because that could put you down the other path as well. So mm-hmm. what what did you do? Like, what are the, some of the things I'd love to share with our audience if you can, like, how'd you get through that? Because I'm, I'm not gonna assume, but I'll ask, like, uh, did you ever question your faith in that moment? Because here you are, you're, mm-hmm. you're up against pancreatic cancer, which we know the reality. It's mm-hmm. the worst cancer of any cancer. There's no early detection. There's no definitive cure mm-hmm. for most. The survival rate is, as bleak as it is, mm-hmm. but how do you get through that? Well, Being a man of faith, you right. know what I mean? Well, the spiritual people, mentors in my life, who are a bit more pragmatic maybe than most people have experienced, where the nuns and uh, Bishop Cody, who was my mentor, uh, these were folks that would approach life and faith with a bit of randomness that there, there, there aren't absolute certainties. It's really about what you do with the information you get, what you do with the situation you get. As the scripture says, it rains on the just and the unjust, and good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. And so there's not like this lottery or this, you know, I, you know I, you're a good guy, I want to keep you, and you're not such a good guy, I'm going to let you go. No, there's... It's really about what I do with it. And uh, my body's designed to heal itself. My body's designed to recover. But there's a probability that it might not. So I have to give myself. So my approach to faith is I give myself every opportunity to do what my body and my soul are designed to do. And and that's all I've got. Uh, it, It could work. It, it could fail, but nonetheless, that's what we have. It's designed to heal, it's designed to recover, and so I give it every opportunity to do that. But I was fully clear-minded about that this could be the end too, but I, I will give myself every opportunity. So that means when the fatigue sets in and you just don't want to move, you have to find a way. I never forget the first day. So the first day, it was like after I had the port put in. And they said, John, well, you can't do anything in the way of exercise yeah, until you lift your, yeah. Yeah, until, you know, this day. So that magical day came. And I remember rolling out of bed and go, I've got this recumbent bike that I've had for years because 
when you have five kids and even though you're a fitness guy, the, you get the dad bod yeah, for yeah. a while, right? And, and you have limited time. You have limited time. Yeah. So I had a recumbent bike in the basement where I would do all my reading. I, I always watch games on the recumbent bike. So it been there for 20. I finally got rid of it just two months ago. Lynn says, it's got to go. No more sentiment. <laughs> but what I would do, I, I remember the first morning I jumped on the bike and having this fatigue that I didn't know a human being could be that tired and pedaling slowly and said, okay, this is all that I have. But as I kept going, I could literally feel myself engaging. And though I wasn't able to do what I could normally do, I was pragmatic about it and realized, but this, this is what I have. And if I do something, I'm, I'm moving my probabilities in the right direction. And I believe with my faith, my faith is about moving the margins and moving the probabilities in the right direction. Scripture says that faith without works is dead and that we work out our salvation, our soul salvation. In other words, salvation has nothing to do with eternity and the afterlife. Salvation is about everything here on earth. Every day I get up, I make a decision to be healed. I make a decision to, to rescue myself and rescue others. And that part of it, as for Intel, as one who teaches, yeah, that did help me. I could talk to myself. I had a lot of information to, to in data, the process and say, does this really work? Do I really believe the things that I've said to others? Was it a detriment almost because you knew it, too it much? Could it could be. Yeah, but um, but that's when you simplify the game. Um, I was told about Larry Bird, since you love basketball, I love basketball. One thing they said about Larry Bird and Magic Johnson is that the question was, why were they able to respond at such critical times and just make the right pass or make the right move or do the right thing. And one person gave one of the greatest uh, uh, observations about that. He simply said, in those moments in time, they see the game slower than everybody else. And I believe that that's about life. When, when we're in that crisis mode, when it we're in that slows. place, you need to slow things down and see the game slower that means if this is all i got on the bike i will do the game slower but i'm moving the probability in the right direction well it's so powerful because i think in today's day and age i mean mm -hmm. with the cell phones with social media sure. Uh, with the, I call it kind of the instant gratification yeah. of society, right? Whether it's Uber, food, you know, people don't, you know, plane mm -hmm. gets delayed. People, you know, they lose their bananas because, you know, there's a 30 <laughs> minute delay because of a mechanical issue that will actually, you know, prevent the plane from having technical difficulties while it's up in the air, mm -hmm. 30,000 feet. But people want to be on the plane, you know, because they got to get to AB, right. they got to get to X, Y, and Z quicker. So there's just this mass commotion i guess is maybe the right. best term of life and, and part of that is maybe it's just a societal thing maybe social media has had to play a lot mm -hmm. with it fake news whatever you want to come up right. with but it's so powerful though and i have always said this sometimes you just got to take a step back yeah 
and just kind of take a deep breath mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and kind of relax right. and assess the situation yeah. and make sound decisions. Because I think when things are moving fast and this disease is like getting a oh, yeah. punched in the gut mm -hmm. really, really hard. And then there's a lot of decisions that have to be made quickly, potentially. Mm -hmm. So people kind of have this freak out, but mm -hmm. kind of have to just chill. Absolutely. So what you just said is so impactful, I think, for mm -hmm. anyone listening that is either going through it now, mm -hmm. hopefully they never go through it Absolutely. for a large audience, but people that may be experiencing the initial point of like, okay, here's the mm -hmm. diagnosis, now mm -hmm. consultation, what do we do? Right. You know, instead of kind of moving fat, like you do have to make some important decisions, but mm -hmm. take a step back right. and have some clarity. Absolutely. Clarity. And, and as, as you... You, you were making analogies about uh, the culture and speed and what we may obsess about on a daily basis. Uh, and that's where the whole process of mindfulness and, and being intentional comes in. You know, you mentioned a, a plane delay. And um, when, when I get on the plane, I sit in the seat and I marvel at the idea that I'm sitting on a plane and that it's actually going to go into the air i have no idea how, <laughs> how? the physics works on this yeah. you know propulsion no i yeah. have no idea i couldn't even put a rivet in the thing to make it work so but mindfulness brings you to a place that you sit down you actually think about that you actually think about the wonder of where you're at right now. The wonder of if you travel, you know, your, your car has a furnace, but your grand ancestors did. <laughs> yeah. How did they do it? How did they do it? Well, we were talking about the Coliseum, right? Like right. before we, we got recorded. Like how did that happen? The scale. Yeah. And we were building stadiums based on that scale today. And that was 2000 years ago. And here we are today. So, uh, mindfulness and intent, being intentional is very important uh, for approaching, particularly something that's going to take 18 to 24 months of your life of dealing with. And you're going to make a decision, your body or you, something's going to make a decision on where you're going to be after those 18 to 24 months. So it's not a sudden magic bullet. It goes away. You're in for the long haul with everything that surrounds that decision. You mentioned mindfulness, and I know in your, your five-stone analogy, you mentioned fitness as one of those yes, stones. Sir. Do you meditate? Yes. Did you meditate before yes. you got sick? So mm -hmm. this was part of kind of your daily routine. Right. And so it wasn't kind of a, a new thing. I, I And I'm curious because... Mm -hmm. A lot of what you have said, John, is very similar to what we have heard from other survivors mm -hmm. in terms of diet and exercise. Right. We find that a lot of survivors exercised well before, mm -hmm. and then when they got sick, they still exercise. Now, it may have not been the same amount of output, you mm -hmm. know, like if someone was doing CrossFit mm -hmm. or, you know, swimming a mile every day, right. you know, maybe then it was doing the bike. Mm -hmm. but it was actually physical activity. There was right. a, a lady that we had interviewed who lives in New York City. She's in the health and beauty world. Mm -hmm. And she said like she kept that routine and she would work out every day. Mm -hmm. But when she got sick, even if she did just did a handful of yoga poses in her you know, living room or right. dining room or in her bedroom, it still was working out to her. 
and health and beauty was important to her while she was prior to being sick because she was in that business. But then when she got sick, she was very mindful. Mm -hmm. She lost her hair. She had, you know, a friend brought her to, and they ended up buying like 10 different mm -hmm. wigs, you know, because that was something that just for her mentally, you know, was just so important right. to have that. So that's why I asked the question because I think it's an important one, you know, for people that are doing things mm -hmm. beforehand. Like chemotherapy, it accumulates. Moving the probabilities in the right direction, no matter how small the moves are, it accumulates. I was told about chemotherapy is that you'll go through one treatment and you'll feel like you've recovered from it. Then two weeks later, you go in for treatment again. What they mentioned to me was that, John, it's not like you recover and you start over again. Each treatment is exponentially more. So by the time you get to treatment number eight or number 12, you are experiencing all 12 treatments mm -hmm. at, the same, at time. the same time. So if that can accumulate in the process of tearing your body down to get to the cancer, because it's designed to, first of all, kill that specific disease part of your, your body. Certainly the things we do on a daily basis can accumulate and move the probabilities in the right direction. I mean, I, I can't overemphasize that. It's, it's not an automatic. No one's got guarantees. But we do have tools that move those probabilities for things to work, for things to have a better outcome, to move them in the right direction. And it's, it's the small things which equal big things. Absolutely. I'm going to shift gears here for a second sure. and talk about faith. Cause I'm interested personally how you got into yeah. faith. Okay. Well, was your dad and you dad, said you grew up uh, Roman Catholic, like going part, to church. Yeah, right? We had, we had uh, Protestants and Catholics, Catholics in yeah. our family. Yeah. Uh, part of my family is of Irish descent. Part of my family is of African descent, Colombian descent and Aborigine descent. You know, we got a real weird mix going on. So I was going to St. Mary Carmelite and I was always interested in spiritual things. My mom was a super spiritual person, pray all the time. Dad, not so much. Um, so I was going to be an altar boy for St. Mary Carmelite and I had talked to the nuns about being a priest. And one of the most insightful uh, nuns I had, Sister McMurray, one day she pulled me aside and says, you know what, John, first of all, I know your parents and I know some of them are Catholic and some of them are Protestant. And I know you really are into God and you would like to be a priest one day. But I also noticed that you like Felicia Bayless <laughs> and I get the impression that you may want to have a family one day. And she made a recommendation when I was 12 years old that you can still be a priest, but I think Protestant will work for you. And she had the awareness and- The foresight. Foresight to just say, yeah. And so I've had tremendous pragmatic spiritual people that helped me to process this moment in a very sober and non-alarmist way where, okay, how do we move things this way? What do we do to be saved? You know, the first sermon of the church Peter preached, uh, 
by the time he was done, the people were moved and said, hey, Peter, what do we do to be saved? And he said, save yourself. That's exactly what he said. Save yourself from what's happening around you. And so every day we make So in my spiritual faith, that's what it's about. Every day I get up to save myself because I've got to live. I've got eternal life. I've got, God's got that figured out. Jesus did that for us. But the reality of living every day, salvation is about the quality of your life. It's about how to live well and how to love well. And that's what our faith should do for us. Help us to live well and love well. And all the other things will accumulate with it. So we move the probabilities in our favor. We live well. We love well. We trust our disciplines. I'm a type 1 diabetic. So this is because of the disease. No. No, before? Right. Wow. Now, truly things working together for good. Yeah. My and, and just for all, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence, but type 1 diabetes is not what we're experiencing in the United States right now where we've got epidemic of diabetes. Correct. I was born with this. So yeah. Uh, I came out with this deficiency in my life and, and through sports and life and learning how to manage it with diet and exercise. And so it gets to a point in my life that these habits are not optional for me if I'm going to survive. And so where the good book says, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord or call it according to his purpose. Imagine that deficiency prepared me for this. for this disease. Already have the tools because of the diabetes that I've been managing for over 40 years. Well, they do say things don't just happen for luck. Yeah. Right? So I think uh, it's, again, the arc of the survivors mm -hmm. and people that have been interviewed by mm -hmm. us and people that have done things. There's a gentleman that was a PT instructor at the fire department mm -hmm. or a fire school in Connecticut. And he was at the top of his game physically, and then he got sick. Mm -hmm. But being a fireman, he knew every day he may not come home to his family because of the job, right. but that prepared him and his wife to go through this journey, mm -hmm. this odyssey of pancreatic right. cancer, like headstrong. Right. You know, so it, it's it's very fascinating to me, John, you know, just hearing you talk because there's so many, it's almost, I, I, my, my hair is sticking up because it's airy because there's a lot of similarities in a lot of the survivors that we've talked to. And that's what's fascinating to me is, you know, not necessarily why the, this, this group of people get it, but that journey that they've taken through their life. And then they have this thing that comes out to them. Again, it's a punch in the gut, but what they were doing before doesn't necessarily change much, you know? So I think that's powerful for people listening at home. Like, and I've heard this and my mom's a two time cancer survivor, breast cancer survivor, like cancer doesn't define you. It doesn't change you. It's just the situation at the time and you get through that. Right. So it's, it's powerful to, to hear all this. I've got a question for you. What was life before? 2016 before we'll, we'll say 2015 how would you describe life before um we as a family as uh partners lynn and i 
we were on an upswing. We had gone through some very, very difficult things professionally that had just drained our world of, of hope sometimes. And, but together as a family, there's one thing, there's just kind of a slogan we have. As long as there's love, things can work out. You know, the, there are three great things the Bible says that, that attribute or, uh, or define maturity. And he says, after everything, all that should remain is faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love because love is the only principle that never fails. Hope will fail. You know, when my body says, hey, your disease, my hope for health in the future was on the line. I had to do a few things. I believed that I would always be. Faith failed. But love never fails. And as long as you have love in your life, you're able to give birth to new faith and give birth to new hope. And so at that time in our life, it was one of those moments where we said, we can do this together and because we love one another, we love our children, we purpose from the time that we met that this is what we're gonna do and, and it's still on schedule. So then when the diagnosis comes, <laughs> it's like, hey, no fair. <laughs> we were on the upswing, I'm about to turn the corner here. <laughs> you know? So it's just like we mentioned, I had the trip uh, yeah. to Paris, all queued up, ready to go. And now we have to call the airlines and everybody has to refund everything. And the world is turned upside down. Of course, that money goes to pay, help pay for treatments Treatment, and things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and you wonder then what more, what more can a person handle? But again, it's about moving the probability in the right direction. The same things, the same little things you did to get to that point. Or the art of res the art of recovery, uh, the power of resilience. We 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 are we are wired to recover. We are hardwired to be resilient. And if if anyone who who's walking through this with us right now, if know that's in you, the, the ability to 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 get going and, and and fight back, it's there. You're hardwired to do it. You, 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 you're restorative, it's all within you. And as one scripture says, greater is he that is in you than that which is around you. And that you can summon the, 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 the power of who you are. If we're truly the offspring of God, then there must be an awful lot of good within us to deal with those things that aren't so good around us. So summon it, find it. <laughs> and some people never find it, sadly, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And sometimes it takes a life altering event. I mean, I can say for myself, mm -hmm. like it took, you know, going through the experience with my dad and losing my dad to mm -hmm. realize, you know, what this is all about. Yeah. You know, the bigger picture. Yeah. You know, because I was so concerned about making money and being successful and driving fancy cars and mm -hmm. having a lot of cash in the bank, but that doesn't matter. Right. As we it's know, cool. it's cool, but <laughs> it doesn't matter. How would you define your life now? Uh, Compared to what you just said mm, about life before. Uh, I'm, I'm more chill. Chill? Yeah, I'm more chilled. 
than I used to be. Lynn's I'm, I'm, ty- I'm type A, but it's like I, I really let the game come to me more. Now so you don't stress about things as uh, much? Not as much. No, I, I, I was a big initiator. You know, I, I could initiate and create a storm all mm. around those that are working with me and, and have things rolling. But now I, I let the game come to me. more. I actually heard a coach say that one time when I was playing football. He said, sometimes you just have to let the game come, come to, to you, you, John. And in life, that really is true. It's a good thing to, to follow. Let the game come to you. There are days you have to, to initiate, but you have to pick and choose your battles more wisely. Um, um, so, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm more chilled. That's probably a good thing as you get older. Yeah, it's not bad. I'm not calling you old, but I'm just saying as we get older. Old enough. We, as we get older, you want to chill. <laughs> um, how do you define, what's your definition of pancreatic cancer? How would you define it? Uh, pancreatic cancer is a giant. Um, 93% of people after diagnosis literally will die. Now, based on what's happening, I believe that that, that, that uh, survivor rate is going to jump in the next three years. And that's just based on what protocol I've gone through Mm -hmm. and others are going through as well and getting better results. So a lot of the numbers we're looking at are numbers that over the last 10 years, and there's a part of me that's, again, survival guilt, survivor guilt. Uh, What if I were diagnosed 10 years ago? Be a different ballgame. Right. And so there's no, we can throw out a lot of antidotes and euphemisms and a number of things to say, hey, do this, have that, make this happen. But the reality is that uh, a lot of us are fortunate and we're going to slay the giant over time. We're going to get there. Yeah. You mentioned survivor's guilt. Yeah. We have survivors that we've had on the podcast that listen to the podcast. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? Because that's a real topic. I mean, and I think the other topic that goes into that for caregivers as well, as I Mm -hmm. look at Lynn and for those other folks out there listening, Mm -hmm. is the PTSD aspect of it as well. I mean, I know you still go for scans and, Mm -hmm. you know, I know a lot of anxiety, anxiety, right? So how do you, what's the best way you've dealt with that? Um, With the survivor's guilt first, and we can talk about this mm, scanxiety as well. Well, um, I had a, I had a friend. It was really interesting. I'd done a, a wedding, um, like three weeks before I began to feel the pains, and I was with this one guy. We we're hanging out. His name was David, and we, we, we got along real well at the reception. Talk about kids and life. And six months later, when I'm diagnosed, the mutual friend that I married uh, was shocked because David was also diagnosed the same week with pancreatic cancer. So we're in treatment, right? And we would converse back and forth and see how each other was doing. I'll never forget the phone call where David said, hey, John, um, treatment's not working so well for me. And I'm going to try some alternative ways, but uh, it's, it's just really hard on my system. And he says, but do me a favor. <clears throat> if, if I don't survive, will you do my funeral? 
And I thought about it and I said, but what if I don't survive you, man? <laughs> you know, will you do my funeral? And yeah. he said, no. <laughs> but I said, yes, I would. And within three weeks, he died. And the wife, and we're talking, she says, well, the funeral is going to be on this day. Well, I'll, I'll just be leaving treatment. And there was no choice. So I had this surreal moment where I'm doing a eulogy for a friend who died of the disease. I have this machine Shame. on that for all intents and purposes, it wasn't the cancer that killed him. It was the treatment that, that drained him. And it was very odd. And we actually were very transparent during the funeral about this is where I am. This is what's going on. This is what David did. And so... Survivor's guilt, how do, you, how do you deal with it? You just, you're grateful, profoundly grateful for the successes that you're having. But always, always, as the Bible says, mourn with those who mourn. Never disconnect from the pain. Like there, there's kind of this, this, when you're being mindful and intentional, there's kind of this idea that we disconnect from the pain. No, man. Uh, if the Messiah taught us anything, scars that heal are scars that heal. Stay in touch with the pain. As long as you're alive and anytime you feel the guilt, look at the scars and continue to let those scars heal others. Stay connected like what you guys are doing through Project Purple. Stay connected. Do things. Um... I've been involved with Mayo Clinic. Um, I just did a, a story with BBC uh, Arabic mm -hmm. uh, on pancreatic cancer. Um, just did a story with Mayo Clinic, working with uh, Waging Hope with Purple Purple Light ceremony that we did, remembering those that are survivors. I want to thank you, by the way, for providing the video footage for that. It's great. But what happens with Purple Light is that uh, survivors, those who've had, those who've passed away of pancreatic cancer and those who are actively in treatment. We recognize all three groups on that evening. And, and so we're, we, that's where it's truly a staying in contact and connected with the pain, mourning with those who mourn, suffering with those who suffer and not being afraid of it, even though you're on the other side of it. It's powerful because I think I've seen in almost 10 years, and I think the, the challenging part is there's no book on how to grieve, right? No. no. And everyone grieves differently, right? Um, I've always said, find something positive. And for mm -hmm. me at the time, it was running, and this is right. what this has all become, the Project Purple. But the, the families that don't accept it, Mm -hmm. you know, have the biggest struggle with it and the biggest challenge. And sometimes that veers off into something negative, whether it's mm -hmm. alcohol or drugs, because right. that's how they, they deal with it. But that's mm -hmm. very powerful. Again, what you just said, and another topic that I think is really, you know, it's almost taboo mm -hmm. because no one really talks about that. So I appreciate you having mm -hmm. the honesty and having that view of it because mm -hmm. it's on point 
and and mm -hmm. and know it's like it's the death and taxes no one wants to have yeah. right we all do die mm -hmm. we all have limited time we all have to pay tax i mean mm -hmm. you don't have to and that eventually can mm -hmm. catch up with you but in terms of death no one lives forever no and so you know, but it's something that no one wants to talk about and discuss mm -hmm. and and i think that sometimes can become a, a very big challenge in the grieving process or the surviving process mm -hmm. For that matter right. if someone was listening to the podcast and was just diagnosed john mm -hmm. what's the best bit of advice that you could give them be your own best advocate don't be afraid to ask him questions and the third thing is have a good cry just have a good cry King Solomon said, <clears throat> the wise think of death often. And when they identified that day during the biopsy, he, he told me, I'm 99% sure, John, that this is pancreatic cancer. And, and Len and I, we walked slowly out to the parking lot. And I remember just stopping in the middle of the parking lot with Lynn and she just weeps. And it's right at that moment that I realized what she would be doing if it were my funeral. We were literally living in the moment, going there. You can't be afraid to go there and have a good cry. And then after you go there and play it through, summon your courage and make a decision powerful powerful stuff john thank you for being on the project purple podcast and sharing your odyssey <laughs> really of this journey of pancreatic cancer and allowing us the opportunity to share your story we love having survivors on the mm -hmm. podcast and quite honestly that this was the reason for the podcast was to share so many great stories of inspiration mm -hmm. and an amazing attitude and mental mindness, toughness mm -hmm. in battling this disease as you have. Mm -hmm. So continue what you're doing mm -hmm. and thank you for being a guest. Thank you for raising awareness and keeping it out there. We still have a long way to go. Long way to go. We're getting there though. We're yeah. making progress. And like right you on. said, I think there's gonna be some dramatic increases in the next three to five years. Mm -hmm for families like yours and for families that are listening, that are battling yeah. and those that will battle. We do know it's gonna get worse, but there's a lot of great things happening. So yeah. we look forward to the future. Slay the giant, baby. Thanks again. And that's a wrap of another episode All of the right. Project Purple Podcast. Yeah.